This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Lovecraft Film Fest. Rule books for beginners. Punctuation gray areas. And Cagliostro. Pieces of Eight from our freebooting pals at Atlas Games is a pirate ship combat game played with coins. Minted metal coins that clink in your hand. And that's it. No board, no dice, no meeples, no colored cubes. Just coins made out of metal. To play Pieces of Eight, you hold a stack of pirate coins in your hand. That's your ship. And you hold one coin in your other hand. That's your crow's nest. Coins represent things like cutlasses, mates, barrels of grog, and the captain's monkey. Each coin has a special ability you use to attack your enemies. Your enemies being other scurvy players and their own filthy coins. When coins get blown to kingdom come, they go to the Davy Jones locker of your pants pocket. The last player with a surviving captain coin wins. One of the cool things about Pieces of Eight is that you don't need a table to play. Because of all the coins are either in your hand or in your pocket. So it's great for car trips. Or standing in line. Also a great pub game. Because if you're doing the pub right... All the little pub tables are already busy holding your pub drinks up off the pub ground. The no-table gimmick is clever, but Pieces of Eight is also a great game. For example, it won the Origins Awards Vanguard Award for Innovation in Game Design, and it was a nominee for the crazy prestigious Diana Jones Award. Designed by the worthy yet modest Jeff Tidball, who wrote this ad copy what was too shy to credit himself. How tragically Minnesotan of him. Yes, I guess we'll never know who designed this brilliant, groundbreaking game. But we do know that Atlas Games is running a limited-time clearance of Pieces of Eight coin sets right now. Each set contains enough coins for four players, and the limited-time price includes shipping and handling. Let's recap. Pieces of Eight is a pirate ship combat game played with minted metal coins. You don't need a table, so it's great for long lines, car trips, and pub gaming. It's an award-winning design for expert-certified great gaming. And right now, you can get a four-player Pieces of Eight package at a limited-time drop-everything price. Shipping and handling included. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-po8. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-the-letter-p, the letter O, and the number 8. Or follow the link in the show notes. That might be best. <laughs> The charging stations and the plush yet anonymous chairs tell us that we're waiting in an airport lounge, and therefore we must be about to issue another travel advisory. And this week, Ken, you are back from a trip to the donut-strewn wilds of lovely Portland, Oregon, and specifically the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. So uh, for those of us who were not able to go in person to check out the Cthuloid Celluloid. What did you uh, check out there? I should begin by saying that it is even bigger and better than you imply. I went to the land of port, PDX, as the natives quaintly call their town. You know you're in a happening burg when they use the airport initials as their go-to phrase for their own city. They twirl their wax old-timey mustaches, as they say it, I'm sure. They do, and ride their, and ride their velocipedes about, telling each other about early Florence and the machine cuts that they haven't heard. Um, anyway, no, I went for the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival and CthulhuCon. So it was both a film festival and a 
convention at which I did panels and a keynote speech and all manner of other things that prevented me from seeing movies. So uh, if you're used to a film festival being nonstop a million movies, this will not be that kind of film festival report. I actually only got to see four uh, feature-length films and a probably a good double handful of shorts while I was there. And what percentage of the, the screenings does that represent? I wouldn't think there'd be that many feature-length Cthulhu movies every year. Well, I missed sort of re-screenings, and by missed I meant chose deliberately not to see re-screenings of Hellraiser and Curse of the Crimson Altar, both of them, you know, classics. Curse of the Crimson Altar, of course, being based on Dreams of the Witch House, loosely based, and, and otherwise unwatchable Boris Karloff Barbara Steele, you're rooting for them to escape not just the witch house, but the entire film. <laughs> um, uh, Hellraiser was chosen, A, because of its Lovecraftian and witch house connotations, being the story of a weird geometry in an attic that uh, really messes a guy up, but also because the, the guest of media honor was Douglas Bradley, the guy who played Pinhead. And will be playing Pinhead again, I understand. I believe so. And so there was a uh, there was a big... Uh, to do over the, over him as well there should have been and he was by all accounts a lovely gentleman who had a fund of delightful Hollywood stories he read Dagon and um, uh, another short story I forget which one The Hound was the other one in very well attended and well reported readings so that he was he's obviously a Lovecraftian of some ilk and uh, so it was good to have him too but I didn't get to see him or the film, really. I'd seen Hellraiser very recently, and I had other stuff I had to do, as I intimate. There was also a documentary about Forrest Ackerman, the Acker Monster Chronicles, which I didn't watch. Uh, the uh, the sort of the new Lovecraft and a reshowing of the Dreams of the Witch House episode of Masters of Horror, uh, directed by, I believe, Stuart Gordon, um, that I saw when it was on you know TV, so I didn't need to see it again. So was the, this a, a Dreams in the Witch House theme year or something? Yes, that was the centerpiece of the con, was the Dreams of the Witch House. Um, And so there was a uh, sort of a Dreams of the Witch House focus to a lot of the media. So were there little intelligent rats running around uh, screwing things up? Hard to say um, which were the intelligent rats and which were the diminutive but hirsute citizens of Portland. Um, (laughs) They both had uncannily human faces, so that's how you could that's how you could tell them apart. And long whiskers. And long whiskers. So I missed Dead Shadows, which is apparently a film about sort of a, a weird comet doing weird stuff. And I missed La Sombra Prohibida, which is a Spanish film uh, starring Paul Nashi, of other of all people, going back to 2010, which was, I think, just shown because who doesn't love a Paul Nashi film? But it's also a Lovecraftian Paul Nashi film. So I missed those. So, you know, to answer your question of, of what percentage of the feature films I, I, you know, didn't see, well, I either saw 60% or I saw under half, depending on how you want to count it. But I did see um, Lord of Tears, which came out last year, directed by uh, Laurie Brewster, which is a sort of more of a mocking film than a, it is a Lovecraft film, and that it's a guy who is haunted by a monstrous demon figure with an owl head which I'd heard was really, really good, and when I saw it, sadly, it was only good. I saw a, a representation of Equinox, uh, the classic uh, film made by people who would go on to make all of the special effects in Hollywood for a while, and starring Herb Tarlick, among other people, um, in which they fight uh, awesome stop-motion monsters and try and recover a book of dark magic. Uh, Fritz Leiber Jr. appears in a flashback. Sadly, he has no lines, which would have been great to hear him say, 
Necronomicon or something like that, but he doesn't. And so how much of a, an actual entertaining movie is that, and how much is it an artifact? I, th- I think that if you're in the mood to be entertained by it, it is right up there with like a, a Harryhausen B-pick. You know, it's not Golden Voyage of Sinbad, but it's, you know, maybe one of the lesser Sinbads or one of the uh, earlier Herculeses in level of of um, uh, fun. There's there's a lot of it that is that is just strongly entertaining because it being made in 1970 by people who had sort of no real idea what they were doing and then recut again by, I guess, the producer, you really are not sure where the narrative is going at any given point. Uh, so that's sort of interesting. It's interesting just to sort of see the, uh, the, the effects like all stop-motion monster movies are. I don't know. Uh, a lot of the fun of it is also the 1970-ness of it, admittedly, and the, you know, where American horror is right before Omen is about to rewrite it, right before The Exorcist is about to rewrite it. Sort of a, a last gasp of the afternoon horror theater films, I suppose. So it's, it's sort of six one half dozen of the other. I, it got a Criterion release of all things a while back, so that's something, I guess. And what else did you see? The two big standout films. There's one that won the film festival, I guess their jury prize, and the other one that won the Audience Choice Award, and I think you could you could probably go either way. Either one of those could have won either one of those, because they're the, clearly the, the huge standout films. Both of them are terrific films. Feed the Light, which is a Swedish film by Henrik Moller. He's the guy who directed Die Farbe, which is a Swedish adaptation of The Color Out of Space, which is black and white, which I have not seen, but I own now because I bought it at the film festival. Um, this is a movie which is Lovecraftian and tenor without being Lovecraftian in specific subject matter. You don't hear any of the great names. You don't see any of the tentacle monsters. There, it's, a, it's about a woman who is uh, loses custody of her kid, and her husband has taken the kid into the creepy factory where he works. And she goes into the creepy factory to find him, and it starts getting a little Kafka-esque with mysterious power structures doing mysterious power structure things. And she finds out, or uncovers, or has shown to her that the, the, the peculiar quality of the light in this building has a supernatural quality or a paraphysical quality. It's never made clear one way or the other, although the... Uh, sort of the three acts of the film are named after levels of, of, of hell. So like the last film about the third level of the, of the building is called Inferno. So that's the last act. So you can sort of get that there's a supernaturalism to it, but it's never supernatural. And it's always very paraphysical with, uh, the reason they take your cell phone away is because you can use cell phones, if you know, to open gateways inside the building to other levels of the building. There's a lot of great monster lore, which I, I hesitate to spoil. Um, but on the other hand, who's going to see Feed the Light if they're, if they're not at a film festival like this? But for example, when you go onto the second level where the shadow creatures will get you, you take a, a, a ball of string and you spit on the ball of string so that it has the human scent, but you don't leave it behind you to find your way out because there's probably no way to find your way out. It's a horrible labyrinth. All the ball of string does is it keeps the shadow creatures following the other end of the string. So you're basically towing the bait that is you around this level looking for whatever it is you're looking for, in her case, her lost kid, and hoping that you and the string never stop moving, because if you do, obviously the monster will just follow the string and eat you. So there's a great, just sort of, you know, half-found folklore to it that I, I just love that sort of element in films. I loved it in, in the uh, Japanese film Cairo, where the red tape keeps out ghosts. 
uh, that you, you you know the red electrical tape and in the movie it's just accepted yeah red electrical tape keeps out ghosts and in the course of the film you believe it even though obviously that's not a legend any more than you know pull a string behind you so shadow monsters can't get you but, but it's a conceit that's set up in this film and exactly that's how it works and, 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 it, and it works as a believable piece of folklore that extends outside the world of the film which is one of the things that I, I really really like uh, to see especially in horror films so you know there's a obviously a, a great horrific anagnoresis at the end because it's a horror film uh, and it's tremendously interesting the it's black and white mostly with a few touches of red here and there for blood in a girl's dress so sort and, of and for the benefit of listeners then anagnoresis is the uh, moment of horrified revelation yes, in a yes. classic tragedy that's the revelation that you have uh, done the horrible tragic thing and you realize it's true import and you can't uh, go back on it and in horror it's just the realization that the forces that you've uh, encountered are far bigger or more destructive or harder to understand than you uh, yeah. have imagined up until the, the, there's this point. A, there's a bigger there's bigger things going on and it's even worse than you thought yeah and then the last one that I saw it, it may not be the last one that I saw it, it, it actually um, but it, it may have been the last feature that it's I saw. It's the last one you're going to tell us The last about. one we're going to talk about, that's for sure, was the Sunderland Experiment, which is really good. It was made for a budget of about $9. Every penny of that $9 went into script and acting, which is where you want to go with your $9. They had some nice computer animation that looked like computer animation. Um, but, you know, if you apparently if you know a guy with a computer, you can get really terrific, uh, dark young of Shubnigarath looking, though never named, creatures. In the movie, they are called Angel, because this is the town of Sunderland, California, after the angel fell to Earth and protected them from the outside world. And, oh lord, is it one of the great psychological bottle drama, everything has already gone to hell and you've come in in the third act, horror films. It, just amazingly good, amazingly human in terms of the human terror that's happening, also Lovecraftian in terms of the, the the notion that this is a tiny town touched by this cosmic outside world. Now, again, none of the great names, no ea, ea, none of that. But there's a very, very powerful cosmic horror vibe to the thing, while it still tells a really human story about these children who've grown up in this in this isolated town under protection of the angel, and what happens once as, you know, as movie uh, characters will, once they reach an age old enough to think, hey, this may not be the best place in the whole universe. And horror follows in, in, in measure. It's, it's just really good, powerful script, great acting, really well directed. You can't believe it's a first feature. Uh, it's directed by Adam Petke and Sean Blau. I think Sean Blau also wrote the, or co-wrote the script. I met them both. They're terrific guys. And it's just, this film could be on DVD tomorrow, and you would not know that it didn't have, you know, a $4 million development budget from, uh, you know, Haunted House Ghostface 4 film company somewhere. It's just really, really strong, really, really good. You know, as a first film and a, and a, and a dirt cheap film, it can stand up to, you know, anything under $100 million coming out of Hollywood today. And uh, hopefully, now that we live in this uh, modern 21st century era of uh, streaming video, and that whole economy is bringing back B-movies in force that uh, maybe uh, either or both of these films will 
eventually show up at a streaming service near you. Yeah, Sunderland Experiment, they said they are getting a distribution deal this month. Ooh. So um, it may show up at an art house and then a streaming service, or it may just be like Alien Raiders, it may show up on a quality cable network and a streaming service. But either way, really, really good flick, uh, well worth watching and great fun. So we move on to the Cthulhu Con part of the proceedings. Uh, so what was your keynote address about? My keynote address was called uh, The Witch Cult in Western Europe in H.P. Lovecraft, in which I uh, defend the thesis, which no one is actually trying to counter-argue, though very few people are arguing it. That makes it an easy defense, I guess. Yeah, well, you know, it's a keynote. It's not a, you know, wrestling match. That Margaret Murray, who wrote The Witch Cult in Western Europe in 1921, there's a reason that she's the most often mentioned woman in Lovecraft's fiction. And that is because the witch cult in Western Europe is one of the undergirding, you know, sort of uh, foundational pieces of his mythos to the same extent, I would argue, that uh, Relativity or uh, uh, Ernst Haeckel's ultra-Darwinism or any of the other more science <laughs> more accurate science bits that we think of as Lovecraft's science fictional universe, that this anthropological science at the time largely accepted, cutting-edge anthropology also made its way into Lovecraft's fictional universe and stuck with him regardless of the degree to which it was um, uh, questioned at the time and is hooted at today. Um, now, in uh, a later episode, I think we're going to do a, a full Margaret Murray consulting occultist. But, as we should. As we should. But uh, the sort of nutshell version of her thesis would be would be that the reason that the witch cult, uh, that, the, that the Inquisition believed that there was a continent-wide cult of witches all worshipping Satan and having the same sorts of uh, activities at their uh, Satan worship activities was that not because this, the Inquisitors were all working from one book written by a couple of German paranoids in the 15th century, but because there was indeed a continent-wide witch cult that was the descendant of a pagan religion that predated Christianity. And as Margaret Murray got older and stopped publishing for an academic audience, her thesis got crazier and crazier, but it stayed, you know, it was crazy when it began, and it, and it, and it began in a book that was intended as a serious work of anthropology, and that's how it was treated by a large part of the intellectual world. And that sort of came down and has affected uh, later uh, sort of uh, proto-matriarchy theories of European anthropology, which uh, also... Uh, lack uh, evidence. Well, they they, they lack um, <laughs> they lack conclusive evidence. There's there's plenty of evidence for various you know goddess worships, and since none of the people involved were literate, it's really just you know how much weight do you give to the fact that there are female figurines, and how much weight do you give to the fact that there are non-female figurines, and do you count a bull as a symbol of the goddess or a symbol of the god? And I assume your keynote was uh, rapturously uh, received. It, it got, you know, a good response at the time, and everyone who came up to talk about it said it was very, very good, and they liked it. I, um, as I said at the beginning, the trouble with the architect's kids is they live in an ugly house. The shoemaker's kids go barefoot, and when you get a writer to do a keynote, it's extempore. So it was not as finely honed as one of my uh, Lovecraftian essays might have been, but it it was from the heart, and I think it sort of opened a lot of people up to a part of Lovecraft that is under-considered uh, by people who want to claim him for the pure science and pure progress communities. 
And was this uh, YouTubed, or will you be uh, repurposing it uh, later in a more polished form? I will probably polish it up and put it somewhere. Uh, if I do a second volume of Tour de Lovecraft, it'll show up there almost certainly. I think it was intended to be filmed, and the camcorder didn't have a battery or something equally. Or so they said. Or so they claim. I also was on a panel on Lovecraft in Religion with Robert M. Price, and a panel on Lovecraft and Race with uh, Silvio Moreno-Garcia, who is the proprietor of Innsmouth Free Press, I think it's called, Innsmouth Press, and with S.D. Joshi. And a uh, contributor to Stoneskin Press's The Lion and the Artwork. And a tremendously interesting and... uh, and, and terrific Lovecraft scholar, and with S.T. Joshi, of course, the dean of Lovecraft uh, looking things upping, and uh, one of the greats. So that was pretty awesome to be there with the with these sort of tip-top Lovecraftians um, and be on a panel and not be told to go sit in the back with the game designers. So that was pretty great. Now, uh, you and S.T. have uh, zinged one another in the past. Did that come up at we all, have. or did he... Nope. He was um, uh, he was not going to bring it up, and I certainly was not going to bring it up because I know when I'm not on my home ground. Um, and he was, you know, perfectly polite and respectful, and a great guy on the one panel that I was on him with. We didn't really, you know, hang out after the, you know, a- after that panel or outside the event because he has his own batch of guys that he, you know, shows up to see, just like you or I do at Gen Con, and for the same reason. But I did get some time to talk to Robert M. Price, which was. Terrific, and he uh, told me that he was deathly ill throughout the 2002 Conthulu that he and I had appeared at before, and that's probably why he had passed most of it from memory, but as I uh, reminded him, bits of it came back, so I restored some of his Tarantonian experiences to him as well. And so did you get a chance to uh, experience uh, Portland at all? I did. In between events, the, the, the show broke for an hour and a half in the in the in the early evening so that people could go get dinner which was terrific so i ran around uh, portland with some friends of mine who are there keith baker uh keith eberron baker keith gloom baker was nice enough to put me up in his house and after the show and so he and i hit a number of portland's must-see scenic scenes such as powell's city of books uh where apparently robin this was news to me if you buy 10 or more books they will ship them anywhere in the country for a single flat rate. Oh, it's almost as if they want you to buy 10 or more books. It's almost as though, and fortunately, I was able to buy 10 or more books, Robin. It must have been a struggle for you. But... Well, I did have to, you know, think hard and, and try very, very hard to, to extend my intellectual interests. But yes, I, I bought uh, about 33 books at, uh, at Powell City of Books. So and when the box arrives, we may have to do a Ken's bookshelf. may do a Ken's bookshelf. And I signed the uh, Powell's author pillar in the horror section. So if you are in Powell's City of Books, go to the horror section, look for the pillar. My name is right above Jim Butcher's. So how does that work? Do you go in and announce yourself as, as an author? Do you have a wingman do it for you? You, you? you tell a man that you are an author, and he, and he looks you up in the computer. And if you are indeed an author, then by gum, you get to sign a pillar. It's part of Portland's you know, commitment to grassroots... Uh, hipster self-aggrandizement, so good for it. And if you were to take uh, one piece of Portland and turn it into a horror adventure or a short fiction, what piece would you take? Well, I mean, part of it, you know, the, seeing the blood moon on the front lawn of, of Keith Baker, that was a pretty good horror moment, although it and it involved scotch and then, you know, going to bed as opposed to anything else particularly exciting. I went to the Lovecraft Bar in, uh, in Portland, which was... Uh, sort of a goth metal type establishment. They 
were getting ready probably to do live music by the time we left, but while we were there, it was just an empty bar, but the people were, were very nice and happy to, to serve us drinks. Did you have a Lovecraft-themed cocktail? I had a vodka tonic because I was. Uh, they do not offer ridiculous-themed cocktails. It's a, it's a bar that has music, and they are very insistent on that, that they are not there to um uh to give you a portland experience they're there to give you a a goth metal bar experience which may be why they were not particularly full but on the other hand it was monday so that might be it in in terms of of lovecraftian horror uh there's there's a lot of trees in portland i have to say that you know they they, they, it's called the rose city but it could easily be tree city usa and fight i think it's columbus for that uh story uh honor and i think that there's if you are in a druidy mood Portland will put you in a druidier mood. So between all those trees and the blood moon, I think that you could you could do something with that. Um, I was sort of too busy being charmed by Portland to bother being terrified by Portland. And the film experiences were the ones that, uh, especially, like I say, the Sunderland experiment and Feed the Light, were the ones that sort of did the job of um, opening it up. Although there was a short film called um, Moonsong, and it was about a, a woman who is a... Uh, who is a devotee of the moon and talks to the moon. And between that and the blood moon, that probably could have been built into something. And if I did build it into something that might be a, a sort of a, a series of lunar events type thing in which only the reader really portends the whole horror as it happens to the innocent town of Portland. Well, uh, that sounds like a, a summary note if ever I heard one. So it's time to move on to our next hut and or area. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Greg Gray asks Ken and Robin, in not precisely these words, why aren't rule books organized for newcomers to role-playing? If you haven't played before, the standard structure, with character creation first and GM advice way in the back, doesn't help to learn how. Robin, since you use that standard structure in the gumshoe line and therefore the rest of us have followed along like obedient little ducklings, why, why do you do it that way instead of the way that Greg Gray would like you to do it? The assumption for at least the past 20 years or so has been that by the time you get to a rule book published by a small or I guess now mid-tier press like Pelgrane, that you have already figured out from somebody else what role-playing is. And therefore, the sort of standard how to play a role-playing game stuff, which has always gotten short shrift uh, and is usually pretty short and not actually enough to tell a complete group of neophytes how to play. It, it famously wasn't even when, you know, the first D&D was being published way back in 1974. <laughs> it never has been. It's, the assumption has always been that you learn it from someone else, that there's a patient zero of role-playing in your area who looks at... Uh, what in 1973 was an even more baffling collection of documents, and somehow the light bulb comes over their head in what is not actually articulated in the rule book. And this was certainly my experience for Blue Box D and D, which we found on a family vacation in a uh, the bottom corner of a souvenir shop in an old timey tourist trap village in Virginia, I think it was, and. Uh, 
we went back to the motor home and driving along as the highway to our next tourist destination, I was trying to figure out how the heck this was a game. All right, I'd, I'd seen ads for Dungeons and Dragons in the back of Analog magazine, but had, you know, I knew that there was something cool going on and maybe there was a storytelling element. But even then I had to like, I was the patient zero for my gang of friends, mm. but I had to have that light bulb appear over my head rather than having a clear bunch of text. But the other reason that we still don't really address that, though, is that really giving a great explanation of how role-playing works, where you sit down at the table and talk your way through a story with rules resolution, takes probably ten to 20,000 words. Yeah. And in a rule book where still, you know, 95 out of 100, to be generous, people are already going to know what the deal is, you don't want to give them that chunk of text over and over and over again because people who know role-playing are going to wish that that was full of crunchy bits or setting description or an introductory adventure. Or anything that they don't already know. And also, the publishers are not working at such fat margins that they can afford to pay for 20,000 words that 5% of their customer base are going to need. And there's, you know, there's an economic drive as well as a, a drive to make the I don't want to say advanced, but the more experienced user happy. And and those tribes sort of dovetail and wash out the otherwise, you know, admirable goal of making sure that, you know, literally everyone who picks up Knights Black Agents or whatever is able to role play with it right out of the box. Right. And there's way more collective lore that has grown up over 40 years of role playing games other than just the simple, what the heck is this? Oh, we sit around a table and talk our way through it and make up a story and we have rules. There's all sorts of other ideas that have changed and mutated over the years, the idea of what a state-of-the-art role-playing game is. And of course, there's a lot of contention around that, but there's a lot of things that would be great to be able to convey to new players so that they don't have to relearn what the hobby has collectively learned and figured out and pieced together over all of that period of time. Uh, so the question is how to uh, deliver that. And partly, we have been basing the assumption that new people are not going to just sort of come across us cold on a now outdated mode of distribution, that this assumption is an assumption that ha has been in play ever since I started writing role-playing rule books in the early 90s. And the idea is, well, people discover role-playing by going to a brick-and-mortar store, and they talk to the person behind the counter, and the person behind the counter is the one who tells them what the heck Dungeons & Dragons is and how it works, and pulls out the player's handbook and the Dungeon Master's Guide from whichever iteration of Dungeons & Dragons is then current, and maybe shows you the bulletin board where there's uh, other players looking for a player or tells you about, you know, Thursday night game nights in the back of the store or whatever it is. Well, that model is, is changing. Now, we're not, thank goodness, losing brick and mortar stores entirely. In fact, I think we're experiencing a bit of resurgence of that. But there are way more ways for people to learn about geek things than there were before. And a lot of stuff is sold direct. So you can now come across, for example, in your Facebook feed, all of your sort of geeky friends uh, in uh, in Idaho who you're no longer in the same city as suddenly get interested in role-playing games and you see what they're posting about it and you want to find out what that is. Well, you maybe don't have a brick-and-mortar store anywhere near you or it's one of the brick-and-mortar stores that's 
you know, a tiny shelf of D&D sort of back in the back, and it's mostly uh, magic and Pokemon and whatever the the, the latest uh, cool thing is that the mass market, to the extent there is one in hobby gaming, uh, you know, I guess it's now uh, probably talking about game cafes where you go in and you're much more likely to be told how to play Settlers of Catan than you are uh, Talos Lanta, for example. And thank God for that. <laughs> Although, if the cafe knew its business, it'd be pushing Talislanta because 10 hours later, they're really, really wired up on the coffee and they're never leaving right. now. But let's say they, they uh, want to. <laughs> let's say they want people to come back right. a second they, day. They want something that we uh, still admire. And, uh, you know, it's conceivable that they could teach you about uh, gumshoe or Pathfinder or, or whatever it is. But I don't think that's really going to happen to the same extent uh, in a board game cafe, which I don't know about Chicago, but they're just leaping up like topsy around here in Toronto, but they're still, you know, board game oriented because that fits a cafe environment more. So what this led me to is the, uh, for the first time ever, an Ask Ken and Robin question has led me to uh, pitch a product, which I now started working on this very day. Mm. So I pitched this idea to Simon from Gary's question, which is that we haven't examined this Greg's assumption question. of how people get interested in role-playing games and how they find out about them, and that it is now entirely conceivable that there's a certain size market of people who want a book that's called Getting Started with Tabletop Role-Playing Games, something that would mm -hmm. not only present that core collaborative story with rules idea and how that actually works and examples of play, but then sort of lays out at least some of the introductory wisdom that we've gathered over the years. So in some ways, there'd sort of be a bit that's kind of a reconfigured version of the Robin Laws types and go into GM types and uh, present sort of common terms and stuff. And so this will be a, a book that will be available separately and uh, also something that uh, we may make available for other people to fold into their books or, or to uh, license it and then rewrite the examples to fit their game lines so that there is an actual entry point that clears up the very, very basic thing of our hobby that we just assume people get magically by osmosis. And have you looked at, uh, leaving Greg's question further and further behind, have you looked at things like uh, Dungeons & Dragons for Dummies and GURPS for Dummies? And uh, th There's a number of, of these sort of books that purport to teach uh, civilians how to play uh, specific games and are marketed or are written by authors who are in that sort of do-it-at-home, you-don't-need-to-have-a-lot-of-fancy-book-learning-space. Is, is there a, have you looked at those as for sort of structure and, and uh, concept ideas, places that you might not have thought to explain or things that you might not have thought were controversial? I think I kind of have a handle on it, and my disdain for the Dummies series, just the name of that, uh, mm -hmm. I think is uh, annoying. I mean, to, to have someone approach you and say, why isn't there a primer for role-playing, oh, well, here's something for idiots. Well, I mean, it's a business model that's apparently worked. I mean, you, you, you can't argue with success, or I guess you can, but it's, it's particularly futile and sad when I, you do. I argue with success every day of the week, Ken. There's a lot of things that are successful that I care not to partake in. That's right. That's why I'm a tabletop role-playing game designer, damn it. And, and the thing is, it wouldn't happen. You, know, <laughs> you know, there's 50 of us who could write this thing, but it just happened to be that uh, we're the one who, who got Gary's question, and so uh, I'm going to be the one to do it. Greg's question. And I think you're right to touch on the idea that things need to be written in an even-handed way, that it's not how to play games the Robin Laws way. It's, you know, here's all these various styles. Look for the one you like. There are controversies surrounding this edition or that edition, but we're not going to weigh in on that. And uh, now someone 
else could take that and, and license it and uh, reconfigure it so that it says, this is the one game that you want to play. And certainly the examples are going to be uh, the Esoterrorists and uh, 13th Age and right. Dying Earth and so forth, because that's you know part of Palgrain wanting to covertly promote or openly promote its own stuff. Although that, that leads to sort of another question, not the specific game examples, which is perfectly fine, but are you going to sort of get peer review from people like Luke Crane, who maybe have very specific ideas of how to play role-playing games, or Vincent Baker, or maybe, you know, Eric Mona, uh, you know, the, the guiding genius of Paizo. Any of those guys? Are you gonna, or are you just gonna trust Am I going that... to exponentially increase my workload for little return? No, I am not. <laughs> no, you are not. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. When they, when they, when they rewrite it, they can rewrite it as they choose. If, if any of them are listening, consider this Robin throwing a gauntlet down for you. <laughs> yes, I've, uh, after working on a number of big multi-author projects, I'm uh, looking for something very simple. You're not going to do anything right. like and, that. You know, I, I <laughs> know what all those dudes are up to, and I can uh, easily enough uh, give a sympathetic rendering, I think, to uh, uh, pretty well any style. Because this is the super basic version, right? This is not the right, yeah. uh, book that answers any high-level controversies. This is the book that tells you, you sit around at a table and you talk your way through it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure that the no table movement that is big in Utah will have words, bones to pick with you, Robin. Yes. And yes. In fact, there is a section on, you know, taking it beyond the table because you have to explain, right. you know, what a LARP is and play by post and, and free form uh, and all that good stuff. And uh, playing uh, on uh, Google uh, video and all of those things. So um, the idea is that this is very much a starting point, but it's a starting point that gives you that coherent introduction you're looking for if you're may be interesting and interested in gaming and haven't made the plunge. And there are even uh, listeners to this show who are not gamers, which I find yes, puzzling. And I don't know how it baffles and, me every time I hear right, it, but, and, good for and, you, but that's an illustration of the fact that if you put it on the internet, all sorts of people will find it. So we should be looking for ways to uh, reel them in to the extent that they uh, think they can actually find other people to play with as opposed to just, reading the stuff and enjoying it vicariously. Well, I hear doors to other huts opening all over the place, which I think is our sign that we must scamper into the next one. Shuttering of IBM Selectrix and the smell of a new ream of typing paper tell us that we are either in 1963 or we are in How to Write Good Hut. Hut, good writing. And uh, here in How to Write Good, I believe that the topic du jour, as they say in Hutland, is punctuation. Not should we use it, because yes, we should. Uh, but what are the sort of nuances of punctuation? When can we change it up? And when do we have to do it? And what is going on with the damn semicolon? Robin, what of those many possible little marks do you want to approach? And bonus points to us if we get through this whole segment without doing Victor Borga. <laughs> uh, well, I, I can assure you that I've already won all sorts of uh, bonus points. The <laughs> question I want to look at is that the, the thing about English is that it is not <laughs> a language where uh, rules 
continue over time and remain cemented. The Phoenician sailors of 800 BC. Uh, we are not French. <laughs> we do not have an academy to uh, supervise and patrol and contain our language. No. We have uh, we are people all over the world yeoman. speaking it, writing it, messing it up, and consequently, rules of punctuation, which you would think if anything has rules that can be followed, change over time and alter according to taste. And so there are certain things that are very clear about punctuation. You know, the period ends the sentence. And in role-playing writing, uh, we are allowed to uh, be a little more fanciful with our punctuation. So you can get away with an ellipse for emotional effect or uh, sometimes using dashes where perhaps, strictly speaking, a bracket uh, might be uh, preferred by someone riding herd <laughs> over a style guide. Those, you'll, you'll have my dashes when you take them from my cold, dead fingers. Exactly. And so uh, what I want to get into is the idea of the uh, punctuation as something that carries emotional resonance and how important is it to adopt one choice over another or even to be consistent within that choice. For example, the serial comma. Uh, that's the comma that goes before the and in a list of uh, items. Uh, some people... Uh, hate, despise, and wish to blast with a flamethrower the serial comma. Those people are wrong. Other people, uh, and perhaps I'm tipping my hand here, uh, sensibly point out that there are instances where the meaning changes if you do not have that comma in place. Ken, where do you come down on the serial comma? I am a, uh, a pro I am such a proponent of the serial comma that I call it the Oxford comma. That is how much I love the serial comma. Unless the the style or meaning of the of the phrase is manifestly approved by leaving it off. I think the serial comma is almost as strong as the period at the end of a sentence. The only time I would question that is if the serial comma is actually serving to hang a prepositional phrase or something off. Then yeah, I would go back and say, maybe you can do other things. But the, if it's just, you know, the classic examples, I'd like to thank my parents, Ayn Rand, and God, you better have that serial comma in there. And if it's just a list... That's what commas are for, for gosh sakes. Right. However, uh, there is a counter-movement, a movement against commas. There is a, a new style of thought that we want to prune out as many commas as possible. We want to start dropping them between subsidiary clauses and the main clause, and therefore those people also want to get rid of serial commas. And sometimes I feel that that makes for a cleaner read. There's less stuff on the page to look at and parse. And at other times, however... I think that the meaning changes and that you want to be able to put a invisible pause in the reader's subvocal reading of a passage. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of still uh, like the comma and I'm a little leery of this movement to do away with them. But this raises the question of consistency because I want the punctuation, like everything else in the sentence, to carry an emotional resonance as well as a literal meaning. And sometimes just looking at things intuitively on the page, there are instances where a serial comma looks messy and other times when it looks essential. And I guess I'm enough of a hippie rules breaker that I uh, sometimes want to even lean toward the idea. Of, you, know, you know what the idea about picking a rule and being consistent about it throughout a text? I, I'm not sure I entirely buy into that. I sort of want the uh, the freedom to say, well, in this instance, it just looks better, feels better without the serial comma, but this other instance, it needs it, and they're both going to appear in the same piece of text. 
And if it's a short story or a piece of fiction, you've got a bit more leeway because you can say, oh, well, this is part of the, you know, the emotional effect I'm going for. But even there, you're going to run into trouble with editors who want to regularize it and even regularize these rules across all of the stories in an anthology, which uh, is another thing that drives me even nuttier. That is, I think, if you're talking about things like using commas for style, if you're using a comma just to establish beat or no beat, like you're talking about, I think that in that situation, the guiding rule has to be, is the prose so good that I'm not noticing whether there's a comma consciously? Because if I notice that you've broken the rule, that will drive me and some other percentage of readers, bananas, because it's like, when is this guy going to drop a comma in or not? And rather than removing distractions from the page, it increases distraction on the page. But if the prose is compelling enough or the concepts are strong enough that I'm just racketing through it and barely even noticing the periods, then A, all your comma artistry has probably been wasted on me, but B, I'm not well, going to get... Or it could be having the subliminal, it's subliminal impact effect. that we uh, punctuation hippies desire. But I'm not going to be overly concerned with whether or not the strict copy edit of the thing uh, had commas everywhere, in front of every prepositional phrase, or, in, or you know, in front of every single item in a list of, of events or whatever. And I'm not going to be concerned necessarily with that because the content is so strong, but I think that it's better when you're starting out to begin by following the same rule through your whole you know, piece of work. And in nonfiction... Yeah, so in any creative endeavor, you need to know the rules uh, before you break them. The yeah. tricky thing with punctuation is sometimes you have to pick the rules when different authorities conflict. But I think in, in nonfiction, it's vital to keep everything in the same format. If you uh, capitalize after a colon one time, you capitalize after a colon all the times. Because whether or not something is capital is information. And that information has to be provided as seamlessly and with as little, you know bickering between the page and the reader as possible. And so if they're trying to parse, what did he mean by leaving out that comma? Or what did he mean by using a single quote mark instead of a double quote mark? Then they, if, if the answer is, oh, I was sloppy and forgot, you're actually getting in the way of the nonfiction. And if they can think the answer is, oh, he must have been sloppy and forgot, because it's different all these other places, then you've definitely gotten in the way of, of your nonfiction. So I think nonfiction rules are different than fictional rules. Fictional rules, you can get away with a lot more goofing around uh, in the same text. But in nonfiction, the, the job of the nonfiction is to convey information, and, and rule-breaking, I think, interferes with that transmission. Well, I have two forks in this road that I want to go down simultaneously, but I'll just pick one. Uh, and you've segued into uh, my number one punctuation hobby horse, which is the capital letter after the colon. I hate that with a white-hot passion and consistently eliminate it. And in fact, uh, just spent several weeks taking it out everywhere I could find it in the mm -hmm. Feng Shui uh, manuscript. Obviously, at the editing stage, someone, possibly uh, John Tynes, we don't want to name any names, but probably John Tynes, probably John Tynes. capitalized everything after a, uh, a colon. And I just think that that looks, looks weird, it's ugly, and it breaks the whole point of being a colon, which is the, the colon tells you that this is thought A, then leads directly into thought B. What if you have a colon 
before a bullet-pointed list of things, each bullet point of which looks like its own sentence? That's a different question, because by bullet-pointing it, you then don't make it look like a break, and that's a colon that goes in a whole bunch of other different directions, and because you've got it on a different line and it's a different sentence, that is fine by me. But it's the one in the middle of a sentence that's all part of the same line that just seems I, like... I, a, I would agree with you in, in those cases, that adding extra capital letters is bad enough when you have to do it in a role-playing game to say difficulty or uh, gangrel or something, and when you are just put, throwing them in for no good reason, I think it, it makes things worse, and it looks like This crap. is no longer the 17th century, people. We do not need extra capitals. Although, now that you say it, put it that way. <laughs> so the other road I wanted to go down uh, briefly is... Capitalize all nouns that appear in the Bible. Yes. Sorry. Where uh, <laughs> does role-playing fit in your fiction-nonfiction dichotomy, because, of course, it's both at the same time. I, I think that, in my mind, if I'm writing the rules text, as opposed to the little, you know, vignette of fiction that appears in the front, or an example, I am writing nonfiction in my brain, although I try to write it as very flavorful, rich, um, and if you, if, you, if, if, if uh, Nice Black Agents, for example, was a book about how to be a spy and a book about vampires, I would have made the text in both cases, maybe not in the vampire case, but definitely in the spy case. I would have cut down on the action verbs. I would have I would have pulled a little bit back from the from the amount of juice that I put into the nonfiction prose of it. Because with role playing, what you should be aiming for is nonfiction that reads as juicy and flavorful and evocative and rich as fiction. And I think in a lot of ways we're following good old Uncle Gary who never thought that, you know, two syllables was enough. And uh, if you didn't have Burton and Stone, you by God had to have a Thesaurus. But I, I think that in a lot of ways he, he, was, he was right about that, that you want, you want to keep people's attention through what is essentially a very long technical manual. Right, and, and you want to have a creative a voice, right, that the, mm -hmm. for all of their idiosyncrasies, that Gary stuff has a voice, and he sounds like the guy who's figured out D&D uh, &D for you and is explaining mm -hmm. it at the table, and, you know, maybe he has a few verbal peccadillas that you think are kind of funny, but that has an emotional resonance to it that a, a more sort of neutral formal tone that you get in some later iterations of D&D, that it, you know, takes some of that wonder and, and flavor out of it. And if there's one thing that the, uh, I totally agree with the old school movement on, it's getting that sense of personality and wonder back into role-playing writing is, is an important goal. And, and and I'm even willing to sort of switch up voice within a document. It doesn't all have to be informal or rich, but the occasional uh, little flourish or joke or whatever, or just sort of a, a wake-up to keep the reader on the page is uh, uh, very important and I guess serves in Hamlet's hit points parlance as, you know, a, a gratification moment of a little mm. blip of energy that comes in there and uh, gives you the variety to keep on going, which is essential in a technical manual because uh, you are actually trying to absorb a lot of information and learn something, and it's easier to learn something if you have those little moments to break it up and to key it in, and even in the back of your mind you know that there's this uh, this joke that goes with this particular rule that actually makes it easier to remember. But I think we're verging away from the topic of, of punctuation and therefore must punctuate this segment.
the creaky cobweb stairs that we wander up and cross under the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky, passing a strange pentagram-like inscription that drips with a distasteful ichor, indicates that we've once more wandered into the well-furnished, if somewhat dusty, apartment of the consulting occultist. And this week we're going to pick up a thought we dropped earlier when we talked about Anton Mesmer. He's actually one of a troika of 18th century occultists, and I thought we would go with uh, perhaps the most mountebanky of them all and uh, cover the next one in the triad and look at Cagliostro. Ken, what can you tell us about the career of this particular adventurer, swindler, and uh, possible heavy-duty Freemason innovator? Well, I think that, you know, the question of whether or not he was a heavy-duty Freemason innovator has sort of been answered. He may not have invented all the stuff that he did, but he, by God, founded his own right of masonry, and only about 10 or 15 people have done that. So good for him. So let's let's start at the beginning and, and work our way to that uh, moment that puts him in our occult books. Okay. Well, starting at the beginning with Cagliostro is uh, one of the great fun things about Cagliostro is that there is a a somewhat subdued now, sadly, argument about where the beginning is. Most authorities will tell you that Cagliostro began in uh, Palermo, Sicily, as a gutter snipe named Giuseppe Balsamo, right? Because a guy named Giuseppe Balsamo did indeed uh, travel Europe as a con man, running mostly the badger game, various long cons, forgeries. And then and what is the badger game? The badger game is where you have, in his case, your young, lush, and beautiful wife, Lorenza, and she accepts advances that she perhaps should not from uh, gentlemen who seem to be wealthy and stupid. And then as uh, things progress to their natural point, the husband bursts in and says, how dare you... Uh, traduce my wife's honor, I'll have you, you know, flogged in the street. And in order to keep the scandal shut up, the lover pays off the husband, and they continue on. It's sort of a, um, uh, you know, it, it's it's the slightly better version of prostituting your wife. So he's he's just a little bit above that, although he wasn't actually above that, as it turns out. And why is that called the Badger Game? I'm sure our listeners... I haven't the faintest idea of where the Badger comes into it, except maybe that the degree to which you burst in in surprise is like when the badger bursts from his, his den to uh, irritate the dogs. I think maybe that's that's it. But I, I have no idea about the derivation of badger game. And if I'd known you were going to burst in like that and demand uh, <laughs> etymology, I would not have uh, followed your advances into this room, good sir. Uh, well, uh, then, then go about your business uh, un unharmed, sir. Unharmed. Thank you. I, I bid you good day. So anyway, Giuseppe Balsamo uh, goes through... Europe pretending to, uh, you know, whore out his wife and forging the odd letter for uh, clients and having the occasional, I'll escort you to the graveyard so we can watch ghosts together and then walking off with the jackets and all the money. Right. Or I've, uh, let's go dig up this treasure. I've got a treasure map. Why don't you bend over and dig? And oh, you, I just oh, hit you on the back of the head. Look at that. You have the, you have the, uh, the shovel. Of course I have another shovel. <laughs> That's not suspicious at yes. all. I gave you the digging shovel. This is the whacking this is the people in the shovel. head shovel. If you'd picked, you could have had the other one. But anyway, uh, at some point, Giuseppe Balsamo vanishes from uh, the scene, possibly because he's a wanted man in every civilized uh, town in Europe. Maybe the smart play to vanish. Uh, possibly the, the smart play. And in 1776, Count Cagliostro appears in London, where he is initiated as a Mason and immediately goes around uh, sort of founding his own Masonic lodges and doing his own Masonic things. Count Cagliostro 
by then, by 1776, is the whole deal. If you want alchemy, he will alchemy. If you want to uh, talk to dead people, he'll do a seance. If you want to look at his wife, that can be arranged. If you want um, uh, occult learning, if you want uh, new Masonic uh, oaths that no one else knows, he's your guy. If you wish to be grifted, he, he will, will grift you, you in any style that you wish to be grifted by. He is a, a, a magnificent presence. He's a great storyteller. He has a good uh, long con where he'll, you know, do the whole, you know, oh, this is a diamond egg type thing, uh, and, 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 and make fake diamonds and, and salt um, uh, uh, gold into people's Alembics. He's got it all going on. And he's also, um, as I suspect, part of his way of recruiting uh, rumors and information to use in his fake seances, and also maybe because he feels a little bit guilty and remembers being a gutter snipe, he also uses a lot of the money to sort of do big cure-all sessions for poor people. And so he'll open, like, an abandoned building and make it a hospital for poor people, and they'll all rush in, and he will, up, you know, give them herbal simples and whatnot, and it will both advertise his amazing medical skills, because all magic people have amazing medical skills in the 18th century, and it will also, I suspect, let him talk to people who were fired by great houses so that he can find out scandals for, for, for the, the, the later seance to reveal, and, and that he can then drop in his occult fashion. He was uh, famous for faking telepathy. He, the way you can tell it, he's really good at it is it's only the witnesses that ever claim it. But people will say that they heard of the death of Catherine the Great from him five days before it arrived at court, right? And so it's, it's, a, it's a big deal that he has all of this sort of secret knowledge. And I think a lot of it is just because as a former poor person, he doesn't get the heebie-jeebies talking to poor people. And there's a lot of them in Europe, and I suspect they're no worse informed then than they are now. So he has a, a network akin to the Baker Street Irregulars. I think so. And then he also has a network akin to the Masons because he founds Masonic Lodges. And one of the other things you do if you're a Mason is you give each other, you know, tips on the market or, or whatever else. And I'm sure that he takes that and... He parlays it. Parlays it. He parlays it into future swindles or future grifts. Um, he's a man on with his eye on the main chance, but he is definitely... A major occult figure. There is a Cagliostro mania that sweeps Europe. Uh, you know, I suppose it begins with every Masonic meeting saying, "Are we doing regular Masonry or exciting Egyptian rite Masonry?" And then people are saying, "Tell me of this Egyptian Freemasonry." And he says, "Well, it's like regular Masonry, except much older and much cooler." And it was done by Cagliostro, and off we are to the races. And and is that just basically that he took uh, he reskinned? standard masonry in a more exotic fashion? Is there anything uh, more uh, story-exploitable in the details of his particular Masonic rite? I, I think as an outsider, I don't see a giant difference one way or the other. The, the color is different, obviously. It's Egyptian instead of uh, sort of um, biblical or uh, in sort of, sort of pseudo-medieval, uh, the way that regular masonry is. And so that's got some uh, some exciting flair to it. I think that a lot of the specific oaths probably have a different cast to them as well. And traditionally, I think Egyptian Rite Masonry, as it again later became the Rite of Memphis and Mizraim in the 19th century, it's still around. Um, I think it's more friendly to doing sort of operant works of one kind or another than standard Masonry is, which is supposed to just be about, you know, you know, doing good in the community and, and not overthrowing the king much. So this uh, is a form of masonry that has a more of a tinge of you are not just being initiated as this sort of community within the community, but maybe you get to do magic. 
maybe you get to do magic. And, and that's certainly what Egyptian is going to co- uh, is going to connote in 1776 when he sort of founds it. Or he, I guess he technically founds it in, in a few years later. But the, the, the time that he's doing it, if you're saying, I have Egyptian wisdom, no one is thinking, oh, this will help me grow cotton more effectively. They're thinking, no, this is magic and mummies and all manner of neat stuff. And that's sort of the point of, of making it. I mean, I guess you could say, what's the difference between a a horror-themed casino and a casino. They're both casinos. Well, one has a horror theme, so it's the same way with masonry, um, I suppose. Does this mean there are horror-themed casinos? Oh, there should be. Okay. So, like many a Montebank, uh, Cagliostro does wind up getting in over his head when he is drawn into the affair of the necklace. What is the affair of the necklace, and what does he have to do with it? The best thing about the affair of the necklace is that it doesn't actually involve Cagliostro at all. Uh, it's the one time that he's tried for something, and he's provably not guilty of it. Uh, everything else he was ever accused of, I have no problem believing. But the Affair of the Necklace is actually a long con run by a different adventurer, or an adventuress, technically, a Jean de la Motte, who may or may not have been a countess. I'm not entirely sure, and I don't really care. But because as a con woman, she is so much more impressive than whatever noble birth or marriage she may have had. But there was a famous diamond necklace that King Louis XV was going to buy for Madame du Barry, and all of the jewelers of Paris basically bankrupted themselves, putting together this two million livre necklace. It was the best diamond necklace in the whole world. Louis XV dies before he buys it. So this necklace is sitting out there. It's the, it's the black bird of necklaces, right? Every grifter, every scumbag, every jewel thief in Europe knows about this perfect one perfect score and so jean de la motte thinks uh because there is a rumor that marie antoinette wants it and marie antoinette does not want it she when king louis the 16th said would you like the 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 necklace she first of all she's not going to wear a necklace designed for another woman because she's a woman second of all she's not going to wear a necklace designed for a common whore like madame du barry because she is an honest to god habsburg and a queen and if you want to look at it She's better, you know, blood than her stupid husband, Louis the Sixteenth is. So she definitely doesn't want the necklace. And she has famously said, instead, you could give me a fully fitted out man of war. You know, meaning spend it on the damn defense budget, you jerk. <laughs> but sadly, this She's is the sort as, of... as dumb as history portrays her. Marie Antoinette is, you know, not to derail this, but Marie, Marie Antoinette is one of the most hard done by people in historiography I think maybe James Longstreet has a better case for having been badly treated by history than she does, but she's way better than anyone in France, I think, pretty much. And that's why they had to import her from Vienna, I suspect. But she's terrific. Okay, future hut. Future hut, the Marie Antoinette hut. Anyway, so Marie Antoinette, the one thing that the world knows about uh, the necklace is that it has been offered to Marie Antoinette. She does not have the necklace, but in the France of that time, what that merely means is, as a filthy Habsburg schemer, She's waiting until the time is right to demand the necklace. Because no one likes her uh, in Paris uh, for a lot of reasons. Anyway, um, one of the guys who wants to get back on her good side is the Cardinal Rohan. And the Cardinal Rohan is a, is an idiot and a jerk. And, of course, therefore thinks that he deserves high government position. Well, she hates him because he was a jerk to her. And so he thinks, oh, my God, how am I going to get Marie Antoinette back on my side? Because Louis XVI is a dimwit but he's not dimwit enough to hire someone his wife disapproves of. So Jean de la Motte shows up and says, Oh, my dear Cardinal, don't you know that I and Marie Antoinette are great intimate friends? And maybe I can help you get back on her good side. 
And she plants the seed with Cardinal Rohan, I think, you know, years before, and mulks him out of increasing sums of money to be spent on court balls and court appearances, at which, remember, he's not allowed to go. So she comes back from not going to court and spending his money on other things and says, oh, you should have been at court. It was so great. Uh, Marie Antoinette was so happy when we talked about about you. Well, she wasn't happy with you. I need more money for that. <laughs> and yeah. finally, she's building up to the big score, which is to get Cardinal de Rohan to buy the diamond necklace for Marie Antoinette as a gift. And she says, if you give her the Dubari necklace, that will win you back into court and you'll get a government appointment and it'll be awesome. And in order to make the, the case, she has to present to him letters signed by Marie Antoinette saying, Dear Cardinal de Rohan, uh, my, my friend Jean de Lamotte has told me so much about you. You seem like a, a right guy. If only I had a DuBerry necklace, that would be awesome. Yours, Marie Antoinette de France. And these letters are forgeries because everyone in France, apparently except Cardinal de Rohan, knows that Marie Antoinette does not sign de France. She signs Marie Antoinette, end of story, because there's no more noble title than her given Habsburg name. The de France is assumed. Is assumed, exactly. It's, it's implied. Like what other Marie Antoinette is going to be writing you letters. And so he falls for this shtick, gathers together as much money as he possibly can, buys the necklace basically on the down payment plan, gives it to Jean de la Motte, she gives it to her husband, I think, and he takes it to London where it is broken up and sold for the value of the stones. Great scam, except that she's still in France, and Cardinal de Rohan is on the hook for the rest of the necklace. He goes to Marie Antoinette and says, where's my money for your necklace? And Marie Antoinette says, I have no idea who you are, you filthy man. And at the giant scandal comes out, Cagliostro, as a known forger, who hangs out with Cardinal de Rohan, because I said before, stupid, and therefore a perfect target for Cagliostro's long cons, is in de Rohan's uh, entourage. So he is tried basically for being the forger of the letters of uh, Marie Antoinette in the affair of the necklace. And if it had been him, it would be a better forgery. It would be a much better forgery. No one would have caught him. And at the trial, he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm a magician. I was, uh, I'm the Count of Trebizond. I have no relation to these crazy people and their fell doings. I'm here for a higher wisdom and a more noble purpose. I think when they asked him in court what he was, and he said, I am an illustrious wanderer. And then, you know, the court, <laughs> exactly as Robin does, busts out in laughter. Yes. And, and so he... It, it is, a, I will give him credit for an unusual word pairing. Yeah, he's a, he's a badass. And so anyway, he is found, believe it or not, innocent of having forged the diamond necklace letters, despite being the perfect patsy on which to hang the whole thing. But at the end of the trial at which he's found it, and he was tossed in the Bastille for, you know, months and months and months. And um, uh, he is thrown out of France by King Louis XVI, and he writes a letter uh, intending it to be published saying, I wouldn't go back to France until the Bastille is turned into a roadway. And then he writes that and he sends it off uh, and, and leaves France forever. And uh, then that makes him a hero to the revolution because he's like, oh, look at that. It's the first person who's thought of taking the Bastille down. Is our buddy Cagliostro. <laughs> well, isn't it more of like a, a fortuitous prophecy? Uh, it's six to one. And so he goes to, um, uh, he goes eventually to Rome, which is probably not the best place to go if you are a magician, and certainly not the best place to go if you are a Freemason. And he's arrested on the charge of being a Freemason, which, you know, pretty much they got him dead to rights there. Uh, the Pope commutes his death sentence to life imprisonment, and he attempts to escape, so he's moved to a much worse prison, and eventually... In theory, he dies. 
Uh, they say he dies when the French Revolution busts into the prison to rescue him. The jailers are like, oh, he died a while back, but there's no body, there's no grave, there's no nothing. There's no prison records that indicate he died on X date. So Cagliostro leaves history as he entered it with a question mark, although there's probably the answer that he's in an unmarked grave somewhere around the fortress of San Leo. So unlike a lot of the occultists that we look at in this segment, Cagliostro is less of an occult thinker who influenced the lore of the occult as a great archetype on which to base characters. And, uh, you know, he's a, he's a doer, not a thinker. Absolutely. Um, he, he had a deal where he would have, uh, suppers in France and you would, uh, if you were noble enough, you could go to his suppers or rich enough, you would pay the, the entry fee and you could eat with famous dead people of your choice. And he would summon them up. So if you wanted to have dinner with Alexander the Great and Socrates and Cleopatra, he'd say, absolutely. And sure enough, they'd be summoned up and you could see them in mirrors and reflective vases around the room uh, being reflected at you. And then Cagliostro would occasionally like tell you what they said, because as the medium, that's kind of his job. And one assumes that uh, his lovely wife, who at some point stopped being called Lorenza and became Serafina, would also you know, provide... Uh, lots of leaning over in, in tight bodice gowns and telling you what Cleopatra said for an extra couple of, uh, couple of quid. So that was a really good scan that he ran a number of times. And I suspect, like a lot of these Italian adventurer guys, he had some sort of primitive Pepper's Ghost or Phantasmagoria with, that he could do with mirrors that you could, that you could sort of create that, that illusory figure of a ghost. I, because, that, that, that sort of rumor goes all the way back to Cellini in the Renaissance, and uh, the box camera goes back about that same time. So I think that he probably had a genuine optical device that he could set up, assuming that he had, you know, money and time and, and people to pretend to be Cleopatra in a mirror. So uh, the affair of the necklace certainly reverberates through pop culture. It's uh, retold mm-hmm. again and again in various formats. Are there any really great takes on Cagliostro? Cagliostro as a figure... I, I, I think that he shows up in uh, He Who Whispers, which is a great uh, John Dixon car novel, but he's more of an inspiration than the actual, you know, f- figure himself. I, I'm not a giant fan of any of the Cagliostro movies that I've seen. I never think that they do it right. He's Christopher Walken in the Affair of the Necklace movie with Hilary Swank in it. So if you're played by Christopher Walken, I think you pretty much get to, you know, re- go out on top, right? So, I mean, Walken is great, but the movie is terrible, sadly. And he's 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 in um, the historical Illuminatus Chronicles, which I just love for the whole Age of Reason conspiracy vibe that that they have. And he's certainly someone that you can uh, use and transpose into uh, different settings because whether you have a fantasy world where magic is real or a more realistic world where people are gullible, you can always take a figure like him and move him to uh, any era, including the modern era. There's still lots of people who are being taken in by psychic or magical confidence tricksters, and you can certainly port him uh, into uh, pretty much uh, any setting, and uh, he could sort of make a cool player character in a sort of a roguish campaign. He could be sort of a fun uh, variant on your thief type as the uh, thief who pretends to be a magician. He, yeah, I mean, he's, he's great, first of all, because he knows a lot of other people that are famous, and so he can always be dragged into anything you're doing in the 18th century. The whole thing where he may or may not have, you know, uh, escapes San Leo by magic and still wanders the world today, so he can still be alive if you're doing a Western or a modern-day game or a future game. I, I think that he's also 
because he's so multi-talented in terms of his occult talents, he works whether you want a guy who who, who summons the dead, whether he, he looks at demons in a mirror, whether he uh, builds alchemical diamonds, whatever you want, Cagliostro can have done it. So he's a good one-stop shop is, is one of the other nice things about him. Now, uh, he had a run-in with Casanova. I think he uh, forged a Casanova letter that uh, Casanova found quite uh, impressive. Did he bump up against uh, uh, Mesmer? Um, I don't... His dates in... Uh, he basically is being thrown out of France right when Mesmer is getting there. Um, so he and Mesmer, if they passed, they may be passed on the street, or they may have met at some time in uh, in Vienna or Germany. Cagliostro spent a good long time going around Europe and uh, doing his bit before he, you know, sort of plays Broadway, if you will, by showing up in Paris in um, 1785. I guess. Right, and Desaad is also a little bit later. Yeah, but again, you can you can. Everyone, it, those things up. yeah, it's 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 a pretty it's a pretty small world, the the world of occult weirdos and, and creeps in France, and so <laughs> I suppose it's a slightly larger world now, but they're less interesting somehow. Um, but but yeah, you could you could probably put Desaad into the same room as him. Casanova, of course, the great thing about Casanova's memoirs of meeting the Cagliostros when they were the Balsamos is that according to Casanova, he doesn't have sex with Mrs. Balsamo, which is you know, may make him the only guy in Europe who met her and didn't, I well, think. What, what but, would be the challenge? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I, I don't think with Casanova it was really about the challenge. It was just more about, I don't know, cute girls. Um, but anyway, yeah, Casanova is, um, is, uh, it, it sort of gets his own back, uh, after the, the, the big trial is going on when the French secret police are like, this man is not Cagliostro at all. He is Giuseppe Balsamo, the well-known forger and swindler. Casanova sort of gets his own back for the, I guess, sort of, Stealing his bit because Casanova had a, a, a the occasional long occult con as well, and he wrote a, a mean uh, pamphlet about uh, Cagliostro and Saint Germain, uh, and basically said that they're they're not mages, they're clowns, they're performing clowns, and we should treat them as performing clowns, which I guess is sort of how I treat them. So in a lot of ways, there Casanova is he's not wrong. He's foregrounding me. Was there a, a Saint Germain uh, Cagliostro crossover? Oh yeah, the Saint Germain and Cagliostro were were rivals. Uh, they, they they played on the same marks, and they had the same act. And so Cagliostro, I think, stole St. Germain's I'm 2,000 years old bit. And, you know, so once Saint, once Cagliostro saw that St. Germain was getting good responses, he would start dropping hints that his wife, uh, Serafina, was actually 80 years old, when in fact she was, you know, a, a truly darling, you know, 30 or 40. And um, uh, he would say that, yes, you know, he met Pontius Pilate or whatever. And Cagliostro apparently would occasionally impersonate St. Germain. If he heard that St. Germain had a really good gig going, he would, like, run off and pretend to be St. Germain, and you know, the people don't know what St. Germain looks like, and they got a good show out of it. And then St. Germain would, would hear about it, and he would be mad that Cagliostro had done such a crummy job of doing St. Germain's bit, because St. Germain, of course, had really focused on the, no, I'm immortal, please don't ask me a bunch of immortal questions. I can only give you, well, one answer, and yes... Um, uh, you know, Charlemagne was very nice, but you know, I can't really talk about it. He didn't want me to talk about it. He was a private guy, kept right. to himself, really. And then, you know, so for, to have Cagliostro showing up and saying, Charlemagne, oh my good, would you like to talk to him? Here he is. And, oh, Charlemagne once talked to me. He said, you, Cagliostro, you're my favorite guy in the whole world. And it sort of cheapened the whole, uh, pretend to be an immortal gig, I think, in St. Germain's eyes. So they did not get along. Well, let's, uh, let's slap a to be continued on that because we're going to uh, get back to St. Germain in a, uh, 
future episode of the Consulting Occultist. And if we're slapping it to be continued, that means we are doing it for the whole episode. Dun, dun, dun. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Punctuate our hard-knock lives by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Joining such illustrious patrons as James Chang. And Stephen Doral. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, podcast, or short film by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.